following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Uh, If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's open them up to Matthew chapter 13, okay? Matthew 13 is where we're going to be today. Uh, It's where we've been for a while. Matthew 13 is, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, those hardback black ones under every chair is on page 819. Open a phone, open a tablet. Matthew 13 is where we are today. As you're turning to Matthew 13, uh, if I were to say... um, White rice, pinto beans, chicken, corn, sour cream, and cheese. Where am I? Chipotle. Chipotle. Yes, Qdoba, you're out. (laughs) Elder review, membership off. Okay, yeah. I see how it is. Yeah, Chipotle, manna from heaven. That's what we we get there, okay? How about this? How about this, okay? A double-double animal style with a chocolate shake. In and out. Yeah, I just spent six hours in line waiting for that food. So, yeah, good stuff, right? In and out, okay? Um, what about this one? A venti Pike's place with room. Starbucks. Starbucks. Starbucks, right? Don't hate me. It's coffee snobs, okay? None of that. Sometimes you just need the Java. Am I right? Okay. Uh, supersize those fries. McDonald's. McDonald's, yeah. Yeah, Don't, I know no one wants to admit that one, but we all know it, okay? Cold cut combo? Subway. Subway. Yeah, that's gross. Okay. <laughs> Hey, what about this one? What about this one? I don't even need to tell you my order at this place, okay? They bring me my food. I say, thank you very much. They say, my pleasure. Where am I? Today's sermon is called My Pleasure. Okay? My pleasure. We're in Matthew 13. We are in what's called the parable discourse. Matthew 13 is the hinge for this book. The first half of the book, the second half of the book, this chapter is the hinge, and it's filled with parables, okay? And today we find two more parables that are linked with a similar emphasis, just like we saw two parables last week that were linked. And and today we're going to work through these two parables that are, again, very familiar for Christians if you've been around church for a minute. Uh, But we want to look at the parables. We want to study what God has for us in them. And I think there are some principles that we can apply from these parables. So we're going to work through the text first today. All my type A's in here, okay? We're going to work through the text first and then three principles at the tail end. So you can just relax, okay? That's what I'm doing today. Text first, principles second. Here we go. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 44. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All right. This is the, the, the parable of the hidden treasure. Okay, uh, you may have heard this. And on the surface, this parable, again, it seems simple enough. Man finds a treasure in a field buys that field so that he can acquire that treasure. That's the parable. That's the, the, the level at which we understand it. But I, I want to men- mention a few things about this parable so that we can really get our, our minds into what Jesus is trying to do with this. Okay, so first, um, the practice of hiding one's treasure, whether that treasure is silver or gold or jewels or anything like that money uh, in a field, like to bury it, to bury your treasure, was actually a fairly normative practice in the first century. 
Uh, this is interesting to me, okay, because uh, banks, there were banks, but they weren't used in the same way that they are today. Money was, was not saved in the same way that it is today, especially for a common Jew in the Roman Empire. Banks were essentially used by the most elite of that population. Uh, so when you're an occupied people, when you're a Jewish, a Hebrew person under occupation, uh, to bury your treasure is a safer alternative than putting your money in a bank, putting your gold in a bank because banks are different back then. So, so even Jesus has mentioned something like this, okay? In Matthew 25, he tells another parable, the parable of the tenants. If you remember this parable, some are given five talents, some are given one talent, some are given uh, or some five, three, and one, I think, or I don't know, Luke's is 10, five, and one. They're all different. But either way, um, the man with the one talent, remember what it says? He went and dug up a hole and buried his master's money. This was a normal practice to protect one's money. And in such an unstable region like Palestine in the first century, occupied by Rome, you can imagine that, that invaders or conquerors are, are kind of maybe moving in on your property. It would make plenty of sense to take your treasures and to bury them somewhere on your field, somewhere in your property where no one's going to find them. Okay, some of you maybe still do this. Maybe you bury some stuff in your backyard, like water or gold or ammunition or something. <laughs> it's a little weird. We agree. This guy's kind of strange. All right, but, but, but then... If you buried your gold, if you buried your jewels and you were captured or you were killed or your land, you were exiled from your land, that treasure would would be forgotten and left in the ground. So that's the setup for this. A man finds a treasure like that in a field. He's in a field. and, And now we don't know what the man's relationship is with that field. We don't really know, okay, whether he's a farmer or maybe a laborer or like a hired hand working that land or whether he is a treasure hunter. There were treasure hunters back then seeking out these buried treasures. We don't know what, what case, the case is here, but here's what we do know. He didn't own the field. This man does not own the field. He, and, and frankly, he must have been uh, not a man of, of great means, He wasn't rich himself because the story goes, he has to liquidate everything that he owns to buy this one field, this one plot of land. So he's probably a lower income, poorer person. He's in this field. He finds this treasure and he wants to sell. He's willing to sell everything he has in order to acquire that treasure. Now, just like we saw last week in the parable uh, of the yeast, Remember the word that, that we said uh, when, when they, she puts the yeast into the dough? What was the word there? Do you remember this? She hid the yeast in the dough. The same word is used here, that the, that the treasure is hidden in the field. The Greek word is crypto. Remember we talked about this? That's, that that, that, that it's, it's hidden in this field. So I say all of that to kind of set up the, the picture here. The man finds a hidden treasure whether he has to dig it up or whether he uncovers it behind some rock or it was hidden. It was not in plain sight. He finds this hidden treasure, but he doesn't take it. He doesn't just take it right then. He covers it back up, goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field so that he can gain that treasure. Now, the question here of ethics comes to mind. Does it not? 
I mean, does anybody else, uh, like I read this story, and I've read this story for years and wondered, is this dude a little sketchy? Like going and selling everything to buy this field so that he can have the treasure? Like if I'm the landowner, I kind of want to know that there's a buried treasure on my land before someone swindles me out of it. Like is this ethically questionable? In this moment. Now, here's, I did, did a lot of reading on this this week. Um, first of all, this is not the main point of the parable. Jesus doesn't use ethically questionable illustrations for how you follow him. He just doesn't, okay? Uh, but just so that we don't get hung up on the ethics of this, here's what I found out. This dude is not being sketchy. He is not being sketchy, okay? Um, frankly, the point of the parable is, is not this, but just for your understanding. First of all, in these days, by rabbinic law, by the law of the Hebrews, a hidden treasure would be rightfully claimed by the one who finds it, not by the owner of the land. So very legitimately, in, if you're an ancient Hebrew, it's finders keepers, You find it, it's yours. If it's a hidden treasure, a buried treasure, a lost treasure, and you find it, it's yours. It doesn't matter where you find it. Second, the property owner, this property owner, the field owner at this time, is obviously not the owner of that treasure. He doesn't know it's there, right? So he does not have actual claim to this treasure because if he had known it was there, if it was his actual belongings, before he sold his land, he would have dug it up and taken it with him. But he doesn't know it's there. The treasure, again, belonged to some previous landowner. And so it's fair game. It's fair game now. And then number three, the man who found the treasure is actually showing a significant amount of moral integrity in this story, in this parable, okay? He could have just taken the treasure, right? He's in the field. He finds the treasure buried and he could have just taken it. And probably no one would have been any of the wiser in that situation. I mean, he he probably knew the rabbinic law that he could very rightfully lay claim to that treasure without any repercussions legally. But instead, the text says he puts it back in the ground, buries it again, goes and liquidates every single possession that he has to his name and he buys the whole field so that he could, for, for, for without any question, own that treasure, to gain that treasure, to be the sole possessor of that treasure. There's no lack of ethics here, okay? No one was defrauded in this situation, not sketchy at all. Just, uh, so that really has nothing to do with what Jesus is trying to do, but I just think we need to get that in our minds, okay? That's not what's going on here. It's not the point of this parable. The point of this parable is that we have a man here who found something so unbelievably valuable that he would sell everything he had to get it. And I don't think we can underestimate the weight of that. I don't know what this guy owned, but he sold everything. Maybe he had some of his own land. Maybe he had his own home. Maybe he had his own treasure, his own family heirloom. Every possession this man had he was willing to sell in order to get that one thing. He was so overjoyed and so ecstatic that he was willing to give up everything to get that treasure. That's the point of this parable. Now, the second parable that we're going to look at today is, is paired with this first parable, but it has a couple of nuanced differences. Okay, so let's look again at the text. Uh, Matthew 13, starting in verse 45. 
45. Again, so that's how we know this is a connected parable. That word again, it connects these two parables. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, similar parable, a few noticeable differences. First, instead of a poor man who finds this treasure, we have another man, but, but the word is, he's called a merchant. That's what it says, a merchant. And uh, there's a Greek term for merchant uh, that implies that this is not just a shop owner. He's not a guy that owns like one shop, maybe in Jerusalem or something like that. He's not a salesman. He's not just like peddling goods. This is a wholesale merchant. This is the guy who buys things and sells them to other people who sell things. That's what a merchant is. He probably would have traveled the world buying goods at wholesale and then selling them to the shops in Jerusalem, to the salespeople in Jerusalem. So this man would have been much wealthier than the first man, just off the bat. He has means, especially because he's dealing in what's called fine pearls. That's what the text says. He is a fine pearl merchant. And in the ancient world, pearls were considered the most prized of all jewels. Liken them to diamonds in our, in our society. Pearls are considered the most valuable of all of the jewels that are out there. And so this merchant is dealing in the most, he, he's a high-class merchant. This dude owns the legit stuff, the pearls, okay? And biblically, pearls are all over the place in the text. They really are, okay? Uh, they are a sign of extravagant wealth and status, all through the Bible, okay? Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. You might remember that passage, essentially contrasting the most precious thing in that century, pearls, with something that was considered clean, unclean and common, a pig. Don't cast your pearls before swine. In uh, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul, the apostle Paul, he will encourage women to dress modestly. And it says this, not with gold or pearls or costly attire. So pearls were considered extravagant. They were considered flashy. They were for the rich and for the famous. They were not modest. And then even in Revelation 21, the end of the Bible, when when trying to describe the gates of the new Jerusalem of heaven, you know what they're called? The pearly gates. Yeah, it says in in Revelation 21, they're called, the gates were made of one giant pearl. That's what it says in Revelation 21. As if one pearl was large enough for you to carve a gate out of. That's how valuable those gates are to the new Jerusalem. So this is biblically a theme that we see, that pearls are of great value. And this merchant is searching for, for, for pearls. That's what's happening. And he finds one of great value. And it says he sells all that he has to get it. Now, this is even crazier than the maybe poor farm laborer who sells everything to get the field. This guy is a wealthy merchant. He has to now sell everything. Pearls aren't that big of a deal to us, but I mean, we're talking a lot of money. Cleopatra of Egypt famously had two pearls worth roughly $28.5 million each. I mean, this is like pearls. It's like the Hope Diamond of the time. The Hope Diamond, I think, is worth like $250 million or something like that. It's just like an ungodly amount for a little rock. That's what you have here. So he finds this, and, and I'm guessing he has a decent portfolio as a merchant. 
He's doing all right, right? He probably owns his business. He owns maybe a home, some property. He's got a, you know, a vacation home, a mountain home. Goes up for ski resort trips. He's doing all right, okay? He's got money in pearls. Maybe he's got some of it buried in his field. You never know. He's diverse. He's diversified his portfolio. This guy's got a lot of wealth, but just like the first guy, he liquidates it all so that he can acquire that one pearl. He sells everything. This is a horrible financial decision. Right? right? Like this is the one thing you don't do if you're a smart investor. The one thing you don't do is you put everything into one investment. Because if that thing goes down, you're toast. So both parables are interesting. Both men do the exact same thing. One sells everything he has to buy a field so he can get that treasure. The second man sells everything he has to buy that pearl of great value. Those are the two parables. And you probably could have gotten that without all this explanation, but I just think it's interesting. You should know these details about the first century and how this would have been heard. But I think we can extrapolate some principles out of this. So, so, so here we go. Let's talk about the principles of these two parables. I'll give us three. And the first one is this. The kingdom is worth everything. The kingdom is worth everything. This parable is telling us that there's no halfway of getting the kingdom. There's no trying it out, okay? It's all or it's nothing. They're gonna have to risk everything. They're gonna have to lose everything. They're gonna have to sell everything. But they think it's worth it. The kingdom is worth everything. And I think this is applicable to us because it's, it's really popular to think that Jesus can just be like a part of our lives, like an addition to our lives. Like, like we have created an entire category of Christians in the church today that really doesn't even exist in the biblical framework. And we call them nominal Christians, nominal believers. Like we just kind of see Jesus as like a little addition to our lives. Like, like you're just kind of nominal about your relationship with him. If that's you, if that's you, if you just kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of in this, I'm kind of not in this. If that's you, all you're doing is settling for something much, much less than you ought. You haven't seen the true value of the kingdom. The kingdom is worth everything. See, when Christians settle for nominal or kind of like half-hearted, lukewarm Christianity, we, 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 we don't end up experiencing the full life that God desires for us. You cannot experience the full, true life that God has for you unless you're willing to sell everything. God, God in John 10.10, 10, he says, he says he, God wants you to have abundant life, life to the full, full of his glory, full of his blessing, full of your joy. But, but if you are kind of nominal, you're kind of half in, half out, you are settling for far too little. You're settling for, for far too little. This is why I think the first parable uh, that Jesus says here, he, he adds this little word back in uh, verse uh, 40, 44. He says, it's, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. I think that well, in his joy is really important. 
Joy comes before he gets the treasure. You see the order there, right? He, he didn't sacrifice and then get joy. No, he, he, he saw the treasure and he was filled with joy and then he was willing to sacrifice anything to get that. The order is very important because I think the basic desire for, for every human heart, for every one of our hearts, on the, and really for every human on the face of the earth, is to be happy. It's to, to, to be filled with joy, to be joyful, to be happy. This is why you've done everything you've ever done. It's to make yourself joyful or happy. You have, you have, you've done this, okay? You say, well, I know some people who love to be miserable. Yeah, they do that because that makes them happy. Seriously, being miserable makes them happy, but happiness is what they're after. And if misery is going to bring it, they're going to get as much misery as they can. We're all after this quest for happiness, for joy, The kingdom, though, is where that complete joy can be found. But we settle for less. We settle for less. Uh, C.S. Lewis will use uh, this fascinating illustration of mere Christianity. Let me read this to you. Um, C.S. Lewis says this. Imagine yourself as a living house. A, A living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. You see, you just wanted God to get you through your schooling You just wanted God to show up and help your marriage survive. You just wanted God to make you a better parent. You just wanted God to show up and help you with that illness that you're wrestling with. You just thought you needed a little bit of God in your life. A little inspiration, a a little of him to be added onto the things of your life, to just make things better, to make you happier, to give you some joy. But these parables are teaching that he is worth everything. The kingdom is the only way to get everything, to get that joy. No little cottages, a palace. This is no mere renovation. It's a complete rebuild. The kingdom is worth everything. It's my pleasure. Now, that's the first principle. There's a second principle from these parables, and it's very interesting. So let me work this one a little bit. There's a lot that are similar in these two parables. A lot of things that are similar. Both stories, you have a man, okay? Uh, They both find something of great value, a treasure and a pearl. They both understand that that is so valuable that in both stories, they're willing to pay any price for those treasures that they find. So, So they're very similar stories, very similar. But there's one, I think, big difference between the two. And I've kind of alluded to it, but in the first parable, the man just happens to come across this treasure, He kind of stumbles upon it. 
But in the second parable, man, the man knows exactly what he's looking for. He's searching for the pearl. So one stumbles and one is searching. What does this tell us about the kingdom? Well, it's my second point, and it's this. The kingdom is entered from different circumstances. It's entered from different circumstances because the man who stumbled into it, okay, the man with the field, that guy, the first guy, unless he was a treasure hunter, which I think the text would have told us about, okay, the text is completely silent on it. And I'm thinking if he's a treasure hunter, he's probably got some treasure that maybe he's not willing to liquidate to get one more treasure. So I'm going to just assume, this is conjecture, but I'm just going to assume that he's not looking for treasure, but rather he's going through whatever he would have gone through in this field. Maybe he's working, maybe he's plowing, maybe he's building something or preparing the soil or, or whatever it might be. He's doing something in the field. And while he's doing his thing and just kind of living his life, he stumbles across a fortune. He just stumbles across this treasure. And listen, there are people who enter God's kingdom like that. It would seem that they just kind of stumble across it. It just kind of happens to them rather than them going out and finding it. So I thought about the Apostle Paul like this. The Apostle Paul, okay, was he seeking to enter the kingdom as Saul? Was he seeking to enter the kingdom? No way. Certainly not. He thought he was already in. He thought he was already in and then he's on the road to Damascus and Jesus kicks him off of his horse and blinds him and speaks to him and saves him. And then he goes through some sort of like Jesus CrossFit boot camp and he ends up planting almost the entire Near East, ancient Near East of churches and writes most of our New Testament. He wasn't seeking that. He wasn't searching for that. He was just doing his thing as a rabbi, just plowing his field as it were. And he stumbled onto a fortune. There are people who aren't particularly seeking out Jesus. But in God's providence, they stumble into the fortune. That's one way you can get into the kingdom. Then there's the second man. Okay, the second guy, the one who looks for pearls, he knew what he was looking for. He was on the hunt for that pearl. The first man stumbled into it. The second man sought it out. We might call these, these people seekers. Seekers, people who are seeking truth. Now, they might not even know what they're actually seeking, what they're actually looking for, but you've known people like this who are certainly on the hunt for, for meaning and for depth and for truth. They may not even know that they're seeking for Jesus, but they are. And this merchant, he's... He's really seeking for something of, of great value. And then he finds it. He finds what he was looking for. So if Paul is on the kind of stumbled into it, maybe, maybe we might say that the apostle Peter is on the seeking side of things, okay? Because Peter seems to be on the hunt for Jesus all through the New Testament. He's just fumbling the ball all the time. He just catches it and bumbles it and, you know, it's just all over the place. But he's on the hunt, he never seems to give up, okay? Jesus calls Peter as he's fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and Peter drops his nets immediately and follows Jesus. Okay, Jesus is walking on water while the disciples are in a boat, and Peter's like, hey, can I get out there? Jesus is like, come on out. 
Bro takes a couple of steps on water. Now, we always focus on the, the sinking. But listen, he stepped on the water. That's incredible. Jesus asks Peter, hey, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the first one to say, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. That's pretty legit. Peter's given the nickname of Rocky. The Rocky gets his own theme song and movie franchise. That's what he does. And, and then he will be a pillar of leadership in the early church. That's Peter. But like we've already mentioned, he falters as he walks on water. He walks and then his faith falters and he starts to sink. And Jesus calls him his favorite nickname, O ye of little faith, right? That's his nickname for Peter. O ye of little faith, yeah. Right after he confesses Jesus is the Christ, I mean, we've covered this. He rebukes Jesus. Peter's like, Jesus, you will never go to the cross. You will never die. And he's like, hey, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like, I don't care if you're Rocky in his eyes. The minute he compares you to the devil, it's a bad day as a follower of Jesus. On the night Jesus would be arrested, Peter fails him three times, denies him three times. On the night he needed a friend the most, and then even after Peter is restored, it's like Jesus restores him at the end of the book of John, but we think Peter's going to be fine from then on. Like Pentecost comes, he preaches a great sermon, 3,000 people are saved, like dude's doing all right. But then we find out in the book of Galatians that, that Paul has to actually confront and rebuke Peter for showing favoritism and having racist tendencies towards the Jews. He calls him a racist to his face. Paul rebukes Peter. So now here's the question in my mind. When did Peter get saved? Like, when's the right time to baptize that guy? When did he get saved, okay? Did he get saved? Like, when did he enter the kingdom? Like, was it when he dropped his nets and followed Jesus? Like, is that when he got saved? Was it when he made that verbal profession? You know, if you declare with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. Is that what happened? He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, welcome to the kingdom, bro. Is that when Peter got saved? Is it when he's restored? Like after he denies Christ three times, he's an apostate. He denies Jesus three times and then Jesus restores him on the beach in John 21. When does Peter get saved? I don't know. Somewhere though. Somewhere he enters the kingdom. So you've got Paul who goes horse, ground, super Christian. And then you've got Peter who just keeps screwing things up all over the place. See, there are people who come into the kingdom. It's almost by accident, it would seem. We know it's God's providence, but it's like they almost just stumble upon it. And then there are some who search and search and search and struggle and keep searching and fall and keep searching. And then there's every iteration in between. Where are you on that continuum? I would imagine that most of us can resonate with Paul or Peter a little bit better and that we're somewhere in between those two. The kingdom is entered from different circumstances. Now, one more principle before we close up today from these parables. And the final thing I want to point out is, is something interesting that happens in both parables, which makes us do a little theology work, okay? So in both parables, the word buys or bought is used. 
Okay, they liquidated everything and they bought the field or the pearl. They bought the thing that they desired. Now, some people just get really nervous when we start talking about buying things spiritually, faith things, purchasing things. You you might feel like, hey, wait a minute, like you're not telling us that you actually buy your salvation, are you? You're not, pastor, you're not telling us that you actually pay your way into the kingdom, are you? Is that what Jesus is telling us here? So what is that little purchasing, buying, buy, bought? What, What does that mean in this parable? Well, in a sense, the kingdom is bought. In a sense, it is very real kind of purchased, okay? But we need to figure out how that works because because it's not money. It's not like money. This is a parable, and so you have to figure out what those things represent, okay? And, And Paul says in Romans 3 that salvation is God's free gift and that it's not of works lest any man should boast. So it's not like you can just pull out your wallet and give him enough and somehow you have earned your salvation. That can't mean this, like, we don't purchase it with our own goods, but, but I would say that it is bought nonetheless. Like, there is a purchase transaction in salvation. And so you might say, so what is it then? Like, if it isn't money, and if it isn't, like, me being good enough, doing good works, then what is it? What is that transaction? Here it is. The transaction is this. You, get, you give up all that you have and you get all that he has. It is a transaction. You give up everything. And in doing so, you get everything. The essence of the transaction of salvation is this. I give up all that I have, and God gives me all that he has. And it's the third point. It's the last point I want to make today. It's this. The kingdom demands a response It demands that we respond to it. You have to be willing to sell everything. Now, does that mean you literally have to go home and put your house on the market? John Holm will sell it for you, right? And then he'll have to get rid of that commission because he's got to get rid of everything too. So like, is that what this means? (laughs) Give it to the church, bro, okay? (laughs) Is that what this means? Like you need to literally sell everything that you have? Maybe. Maybe. I think he's talking in a parable here, so we need to figure out what that means. But he might, but, but what he means is that you, you need to be able to look at everything in your life. You need to be able to take an inventory, as it were, of everything in your life. And you have to be able to say, nothing is more important than Jesus to me. If it's a choice between that and Jesus, if it's a choice between this and Jesus, if it's a choice between anything and Jesus, I'm willing to take any loss rather than lose him. It it, it will be my pleasure to sell all that I have. Now, before you say, sure, I'm in on that Jesus. Jesus will warn us to count the cost to take stock for a second. Just a couple of thoughts. Are you willing to let others know that you're a follower of Christ? Like, let them know. Like, your neighbors, do they know? Your coworkers, your friends, maybe the hardest, some of your family members. 
If you're afraid or embarrassed of letting others know that you're even a follower of Christ, then, then maybe your image or what you think they think of you is something you're unwilling to sell. When it comes to your money, when it comes to your sexuality, okay, when it comes to any ethical kind of moral thing, if you say, well, uh, if I have to do that with my money, or, or if I have to do that with my sexuality, well, forget it. God would never ask that of me. What you're saying in reality is, I'm just unwilling to sell that. I'm unwilling to sell it. If you say, God, I will obey you if... And then fill in the sentence with anything that you want. I will obey. I will follow if. Whatever's on the other side of that if is the thing you aren't willing to sell. If you say, hey, man, I've tried this Christian thing. Like I tried it out, but then this thing happened or that thing happened. And how could I possibly love a God who would allow that kind of stuff to happen? What you're essentially saying there is, hey, there's something that, that, that I am unwilling to sell to keep Jesus. There's something more important than that treasure in my life. Following Jesus will cost you everything that you have. We exchange ourselves. We exchange our sin, our will, our control over our lives, and we get Jesus. He is the pearl. He is the treasure. Now, I don't think that, like, if you're a new Christian, or maybe you can think back to when you became a Christian, I don't think you get that day one of following Jesus. I don't think you get the, the ramifications of what it means to be a part of this kingdom. But I believe that true salvation is marked with a willingness to do more and more as it is revealed to you. The kingdom demands a response. So the kingdom is like a treasure worth so much that you'd be willing to give up everything. The kingdom is like a pearl that's so valuable that you would liquidate all that you have to acquire it. Church, have you done this? I can't answer that for you. You can sit in church for many years, many decades even, and never do that. Have you entered the kingdom? What is the response that you have to this? See, I think all too often we foolishly settle for less than this. And I was thinking about it this way. A few years ago, Marcy and I were uh, at, at some friend's house, uh, like a dinner party in their backyard around a fire pit, just a couple, a few couples all hanging out around the fire pit. And all the kids are playing in the house. All of our children are just kind of running around their house, making a mess of their house, which is great. If you want me to come over to your house and make a mess of your house, I would love to eat your food and then go home to my clean house. I'm in for that, Okay. But our kids are making a mess of their house and they're, you know, everybody's dressed up in a different princess dress and every stick is a sword or a gun. Like that's just kind of what's happening at this house. And all of the adults, we're all on the back porch being irresponsible parents sitting around the fire pit having a great time while the kids are just running amok inside, okay? Now, one couple, their two-year-old son comes out uh, of the inside from playing inside and he runs over to his mama and she notices that his face and his shirt are all covered in water, just like all, all drenched. And I remember she says, oh, buddy, like, how'd you get all wet? Did you spill your drink all over you? Like, how'd that happen? Well, this little buddy, he, he can't talk yet. And so, so one of the other kids pokes his head out of the screen door and yells, he was playing in the potty. 
then just runs back in and starts playing again with the other kids, okay? It's like, hey, thanks for watching your little brother. <laughs> so apparently, this two-year-old boy was taking double handfuls of water from the potty and lapping it, like a dog, lapping it up to get a drink, which makes obvious sense because <laughs> he was thirsty. And we were neglecting getting him a sippy cup, apparently, all right? But it's like, buddy, that's, that's potty water. Like, that's not for drinking. That's, that's, that's yucky. That's icky. And his parents are kind of germaphobes. So they were like out of their minds. <laughs> Wrap them in cellophane and get them out of here, right? Like that was what was going on. This is a picture for us, church. We run to things. And we lap up water that just won't satisfy us. Like, that's not for drinking. Hey, listen, that's potty water. You don't want to drink that. Jesus offers you something better than that. And that's what Jesus is teaching us in these parables, that there's something better. It's a treasure. It's a pearl. It's worth everything. There's nothing better. Here's how I'll sum it up. You give up nothing when you give up everything because you gain everything in the kingdom of heaven. You give up nothing when you give up everything because you gain everything in the kingdom of heaven. We're about to sing a new song for us and the the chorus sings, there's nothing better than you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Would you give up everything to gain everything in Christ? It's my pleasure. Let's pray together. Father, we we love these two stories. We preach these two stories. We talk about the pearl. We talk about the treasure. And yes, yet, Father, when, when rubber hits the road, I realize all too often that, that there are things that I'm still clinging to. There are places that I'm still running to and I'm getting double fistfuls of potty water, as it were, trying to quench my thirst, trying to find happiness, trying to find contentment, trying to find joy, and and it's all for naught. It's futile. Because in this parable, these two parables, Lord, we see that nothing is better than you. You're worth everything all kinds of people from all kinds of circumstances can enter into this kingdom. But it's going to cost us. Lord, deepen our love for you. If we know you today, if we came in here knowing and loving and wanting that treasure, Lord, I pray all the more that we would seek after it. I pray that all the more today as our, as our veils are taken off of our eyes, we would see how great you are and how worth it you are to sacrifice everything. And if, and if man, there's somebody today who doesn't yet know you, who maybe today stumbled into this place and has found a treasure. Maybe today they've been on the search for years and for the first time they saw that pearl of great value. Lord, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would save them. That they'd be willing to give up everything. That they would lose everything so that they can gain everything in the kingdom. Thank you, Father, for these words. We bless you today. Help us to worship in Jesus' name. Amen.